right, everyone. Good morning. We are now live uh, on Facebook and have welcomed our uh, members joining by webinar on Zoom. Uh, this is uh, week five in our office hour study of the book of Job. Uh, my name is Chris Holmes, and I'm the scholar in residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta and one of the pastors on staff. And I am joined this morning uh, by Dr. Brennan Breed, who is an Associate Professor of Old Testament at um, Columbia Theological Seminary, and Dr. Safwat Marzouk, who is a, uh, a professor at, and I'm, I knew I was going to slaughter the institution. I know the abbreviation. So somebody help me out here. Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. There we are. Right. There we are. Um, ANBS, Anabaptist Mennonite. In uh, beautiful uh, Elkhart, Indiana, where my dad is from. Uh, oh. My dad also lived in Goshen for a little while, so I've been there a whole bunch. Yeah. So yeah. in any event, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the weather, I, I hope, is finally, um, finally warm uh, in yes. Indiana. Yes, it's warming up. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Uh, I also, uh, I, I know by experience that it can be pretty cold, pretty, pretty. Uh, I remember being there in June once visiting my grandma and uh, uh, yes. like they, they were talking about a recent snow. So it was, uh, yeah. It's, well. Yeah, it's unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, unpredictable as is everything in the world right now. Right. Uh, and the book of Job, in fact, is completely unpredictable. But Safwa, before we jump into the book of Job, our final uh, a week on this subject, um, can we uh, uh, ask you, and usually we begin in office hours by asking our guests to share uh, a bit about their own uh, way or like, lens of reading the Bible, some of their hermeneutical presuppositions. And just for me to introduce you a little bit. Uh, I know Safwat uh, from my time at Princeton Theological Seminary, where Safwat uh, did his uh, PhD in, uh, in biblical studies, uh, focusing on the Old Testament. And, uh, and I remember uh, sharing a class uh, with him, uh, uh, taught by Dr. Liang Seao, who was here uh, this last week. Uh, it was a challenging class. Uh, it was, uh, there was a lot of information in that class. And a lot presupposed about it. But anyway, I, I remember Safwat writing a really brilliant paper on Job chapter 8, uh, which I don't think you ever published, but anyway, you, sh you should yeah. someday. But, uh, but uh, Safwat's um, work, uh, his really kind of amazing, uh, groundbreaking work uh, on uh, monster theory, and uh, I know that that sounds like something that's kind of uh, uh, perhaps not within the realm of typical biblical studies, um, but it's actually a growing field of thinking about what is the monstrous. And so Safwat's book, Egypt is a Monster, in the book of Ezekiel, grew out of his dissertation. Um, it's also fascinating because it takes the, the, the lens of, of Egypt. How does Egypt function in the Bible? And this is an important thing for Safwat himself, who is an Egyptian, uh, and uh, who brings his own uh, particular um, uh, life story into uh, his biblical interpretation uh, in uh, both that uh, scholarly publication, but also in some uh, internet publications you might be able to find. We can actually post a link uh, in the comments to um, uh, a Huffington Post article he wrote about uh, what the Exodus means from a Christian Egyptian perspective, which I thought was a really brilliant article. Uh, but anyway, Safwat, um, uh, can you please introduce to us a bit about yourself, your own work, um, and how, how you uh, read the Bible? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I am really excited to join in this conversation and um, uh, very happy to share some of my journey as um, a reader of the Bible. Uh, so I, I mean, I view the Bible as a theological document that uh, speaks about God um, and God's relationship with the world. Uh, but as I do that, um, one of the uh, really important hermetical uh, postures that I take is that the Bible is an other uh, to me, that the Bible comes from a completely different context 
than uh, my own and um, my relationship with this other can uh, be uh, rich and complicated or complex in many ways. Uh, uh, you know, trying to understand this, the otherness of the Bible, relating to it, connecting with it, but also sometimes wrestling with it, uh, trying to uh, uh, relate to it as an other that is different. I cannot completely, uh, you know, observe it into my, myself, uh, but I still engage with it and it speaks uh, to me. Um, so the otherness of the Bible is really important as trying to, you know, uh, honor this gap between uh, the, the Bible and uh, my own context, but uh, realizing that the Bible has been speaking to communities of faith and continues to speak to our contemporary context, but the starting point really needs to recognize the otherness of the Bible. I also try to work at this uh, self-conscious reader. Um, so we all read the Bible uh, from our location, uh, cultural location, uh, racial, ethnic background, uh, socioeconomic background, and lots of aspects of our identity. Uh, we also read it as part of faith communities that the Bible has uh, been read uh, for centuries uh, by different communities of faith and different geographical locations and different languages. So we never read the Bible uh, in a vacuum. Uh, so therefore, I think it's really important to be honest uh, as readers about where we're coming from, uh, what are we bringing to the text, how we are reading the text from our cultural location, but also how the text is speaking back, maybe sometimes in critical voices to our own context. So this idea of um, uh, re-examining the presuppositions, we can't fully get rid of them, but it's really important to examine them as we do this process. The last thing that I would uh, like to say is that I also try to read uh, the Bible uh, with the other in mind. Uh, so when I'm reading a biblical text and I'm interpreting it uh, as a self-conscious reader, honoring its otherness and doing all of the historical and the theological reflection, I ask myself uh, through my reading who's embraced and who's excluded. Um, and that is really important in this time where uh, lots of people from different cultures read the Bible and uh, read the Bible together. And sometimes we assume a particular norm in our reading that eventually actually excludes people from different faith traditions uh, within our own, let, let's say, the, in the Christian family. But even our brothers and sisters from the Jewish faith or the Muslim faith and so on. So another important question as I interpret the Bible, I ask about the other. Uh, who might be reading the same text and uh, whether my reading excludes them or embraces them and what does that mean for um, communal and interreligious relationships. Wow, thank you. And, and, and just to follow up on that too, about uh, interreligious uh, and ecumenical relationships, but, but also uh, uh, focusing on kind of thinking about difference and how people can relate across difference uh, and think about the other. Um, you have a recent book that you just published that is, uh, I mean, you know, you have your scholarly work that you do. And then also one of the things I really appreciate about, about you, Safwat, is that you write for the church and, and for, uh, you know, people who are, are lay readers. Um, and one of the things that uh, you recently published was a book about multicultural church and taking that seriously. It seems like that speaks to this moment, but also to something like the book of Job too, which thinks about difference and different ways of communicating and so on. 
and I know this takes us a bit of feel, but I think it'll work work into the conversation. So feel free to bring it up later more if you want. But do you, I mean, in terms of a, of a brief um, uh, kind of overview of some of the ways that you think a multicultural church might might work, and maybe it doesn't work in you know in many ways, it it, it gets try, it tries to be enacted, uh, especially in predominantly white uh, communities. Um, do you have any quick tips or things to to suggest from from our book, uh, for, from your book, uh, for our our community? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so the book is on intercultural church, and it's a, in some ways, trying to offer a biblical vision for a time of migration, where um, I'm actually trying to say that, uh, you know, it, we're, we're, we should not be thinking about intercultural uh, work just because we have a migration phenomenon, but rather that the Bible itself was written by people who were on the move. They were uh, moving from you know, Egypt to the promised land, there is the exile, there is the diaspora communities in the New Testament. So the text itself is, uh, is in some ways a product of uh, people who experienced uh, dislocation and uh, displacement. Uh, and as we do that, then uh, we kind of recover something that we have lost because we have read the Bible from a settled perspective, mm -hmm. from a perspective of communities that have settled for centuries. So we lost that lens. So I think what I'm trying to call for is to actually recover that. And I think if I were to connect it with your work, Brennan, like the Bible as a nomadic text, right? That, that the Bible itself is, 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 a, is a traveling text, right? It's, yeah. it's, it, it moves in wild ways and in ways yeah. that are unexpected. And, uh, uh, and that's embedded in the text itself. And we maybe have lost it because we just got accustomed to reading from a, um, a settled perspective. Yeah. The, the, maybe a connection between uh, this kind of intercultural work and uh, reading Job. In one of the chapters, I talk about worship and doing worship in an intercultural setting. Uh, and I rely heavily on the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, I dare to get into the New Testament in this yeah. book. Uh, uh, like chapters four through seven, where you have the, the discourse of praise of community that is made up of people from different languages, ethnicities, and peoples and languages, worshiping God together and the slaughtered lamb. So you have this overwhelming uh, uh, praise, right? That, that the community utters to God. But there is also in the middle of that, the martyrs who are by the, the, uh, the altar, who are also crying out. They are longing for divine judgment and divine retribution, divine justice, like Job. So the connection that I think is really important to draw here is that when we are thinking about intercultural worship, we're not just talking about just singing in different languages, although I think that's really important and significant, or diversifying our spiritualities by singing different hymns and different songs from different cultural backgrounds. But it's also about giving voice to people where they are in their relationship with God and their experience of trauma, disorientation, as well as praise and relinquishment and trust and so on. So an intercultural worship is not just about using different languages, although that's really important, but it's also about honoring the different walks of lives that are present within the faith community that is offering that worship. Yeah. Wow, that's really, really cool. And thank you for connecting it to, to Job. So uh, intercultural <laughs> church, please pick that up and, uh, uh, and let it bless you as well. Yeah, just for those that maybe missed it in the comments, I, I posted in Facebook Live both the um, the article that Brennan mentioned earlier and uh, a link to the book uh, where you can read more about uh, 
Softwatt's work, and uh, and it's so interesting. I've got your book somewhere here in my office. It's in my reading list. I bought it last year at SPL, I think. So, um, should we should we transition yes. now to our our you know our our study of Job? And uh, just to catch us up um, uh, for those that that have been following along, this is our last week, and we're 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 considering to begin with the what is known as the prose ending, um, which is sort of this narrative frame that that surrounds the book of Job, and uh, we wanted to start um, with this verse uh, in uh, forty-two verse six, which in the NRSV says. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this, this may be my, I was never a Southern Baptist, but for some reason I feel that influence in my spiritual tradition uh, that makes me ask this question, what is Job repenting of? Uh, is it, what's going on here that, that it seems like, uh, has Job done something wrong? Is that how repent is meant to be understood or, or should we be looking out for something else? Yeah, um, this verse is uh, one of the really interesting, I mean, the whole book is, is ambiguous and, and interesting and is open uh, to multiple readings, but this verse uh, is especially also uh, really interesting in how one would uh, translate that verse. Uh, so as you noted, the NRSV is actually inserting some words there, like uh, despise myself. There is no myself in the Hebrew text. It's really uh, important. Which is really <laughs> important, right? Uh, at least they could have put in, you know, brackets or parentheses, just, you know, or uh, something to, to say that we're making, you know, uh, an assumption here, which I mean, any translation is an interpretation, but it's really interesting that uh, it was about himself, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what is Job the, uh, uh, despising or uh, retracting or mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, uh, reconsidering is ambiguous, and also uh, the other verb uh, to um, um, to macham uh, to repent to change one's mind. Uh, is whether he is repenting or he's changing his mind towards something or about something, concerning something. Um, and, and it can, it it can be, even mean comforting, right? Like or, that's one thing that Carol Newsom points out. Like it can even yes. mean to be like, to actually be comforted. Yeah, to be comforted toward, uh, concerning something, right? Right, uh, right, right, yeah. The latter uh, words, uh, uh, dust and ashes. So, the, the, the verse has been translated in multiple ways, but can kind of like take two major streams. Um, one stream that takes the side of God, if, if we want to put it this way, where Job, uh, after being rebuked by God and the divine speech that shows the huge difference between divine perspective and human perspective, Job finally realized his uh, um, you know, smallness, uh, his small place in the divine universe, and therefore he is repenting, uh, he is uh, changing his mind, and he is kind of uh, uh, pulling back, and that in some ways takes uh, uh, God's side, that God won the, the, the argument. There is another uh, stream of translations that in some ways try to take Job's side, that uh, uh, maybe Job is actually regretting that uh, he had lamented <laughs> because uh, all he got was that kind of rebuke uh, and manifestation of divine sovereignty and did not really get answers. Uh, it could also uh, be that um, uh, Job is 
uh, is changing his mind uh, about what it means to be a human being in this universe. Mm -hmm. So may maybe being comforted or changing his view about what it means to be dust and ashes. It has been also noted that, uh, so Job is changing his mind about particular things that he had said, like recanting something. Um, what could these be? So one of the suggestions is that could be his last words. Are these the last words when he said, I will be silent? Or are these his last speech, in, uh, especially in chapter 30, where he was questioning the divine design of the universe? And in that case, if Job is now kind of rethinking the words that he said about his place as a human being and the divine design of the universe, could that also be related to how he is rethinking or being comforted about what it means to be dust and ashes in the world? Mm. And these two Hebrew words that are translated dust and ashes are also used in chapter 30 and also used in the divine uh, conversation uh, with Abraham in uh, Genesis 18, where uh, Abraham recognizes his uh, uh, mortality as a human being, but yet he dares to tell God about, you know, the judge of the universe should do justice. So there is that possibility that what is happening here is that Job is rethinking the words that he said in his last speech, mm. and that he is, he is reconsidering that he's not just dust and ashes. Hmm. That, that even as dust and ashes, he dares to actually talk to God about doing justice, yeah. as Abraham had done uh, before. Right. So like Behomoth, you know, um, and this is one of the only places in the divine speech where God connects directly with Job. Like Behomoth, maybe God made Job. Yes, he is dust and ashes. But God made Job like Behomoth, who could stand at the mouth of the river and bear all of that pressure and all of that uh, uh, pain and suffering, and yet stands like steel, like strong Behomoth, you know, uh, who is actually telling God, like, you can do better <laughs> uh, than this. So uh. it, I am leaning towards this yeah. latter reading where Job is rethinking his place as a human being in this uh, divine uh, design of the cosmos. Yeah, I love I love uh, uh, Kathleen O'Connor has a little bit in her uh, article on the divine speeches where she talks about she makes a lot about that comparison in, in chapter 40 verse 15 that like I made God says to Job I made behemoth this chaos monster like I made you and the idea being that yeah humans are chaos monsters we're, we're not some kind of like uh, just pure recipients of, of uh, you know sort of divine justice or divine injustice or something like that but we are agents uh, who have kind of some some role to play in the cosmos and we can do things that God doesn't like like stand up to, to God and tell God that God's doing a bad yeah. job yeah but that so the kind of job accepting that role you're saying is a part of of this kind of transformation yes so in in some ways uh, you know pain and suffering can uh, disorient us in uh, on where we are located in this universe the divine speech can make us feel that we are really small in that universe, but it can also open our eyes that, you know, in this vast universe that only God can control, uh, we are given a voice as, as human beings, especially the ones who are suffering. Through their resilience, they are kind of rewriting what it means to be a human 
in uh, in the divine design of of this universe. Yeah. Wow. So I want to. I just want to like do a a small excursus here and just say for folks that that don't know Hebrew as well as you two, um, uh, there there is a way right for folks to to get into some of these questions, and and one of them is. A simple translation comparison. If if you're mm-hmm. reading along in Job and you say, "I'm I'm fed up. I don't understand why this text says uh, that I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." That seems strange. A real easy way to go at least start that, besides looking at a study Bible, would be to just pull up something like Bible BibleGateway.com and and say, "Let's see how these different translations work it out," because that might that might help help out. Um, yeah. Because Safwat, as you said, every translation is an interpretation. Um, and I think we've seen this a multiple times at Job where it is such an elusive, ambiguous text that um, that we can get very different translations and, and very different yeah. meanings. Because, you know, for me, the, the verse six, when you say repent, that automatically has a moral or religious connotation. But when you when you open up the possibility, Safwat, as you did, of of changing your mind or seeing things differently, that's that's a whole different um, ball mm-hmm. game, uh, and so I, I I'm appreciate I appreciate that uh, yeah, yeah. that walk down uh, this translation. Yeah, and that that that, that verb um uh, um us like to to re- to despise or reject or something, and like the Sapo points out there that myself is an addition to the text. It's not there in Hebrew. Now, one of the ways to know that is like Chris points out, if you pull up some several uh, translations and. Here we can recommend a few like NRSV, New Revised Standard, CEB, Common English Bible, uh, NJPS, the New Jewish Publication Society uh, for Old Testament texts. Um, uh, what, are some, what are some other favorite ones that you can compare and see if words disappear even, which suggests they aren't in the Hebrew? Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, for theological reasons, uh, just to also add the new international version, you mm-hmm. know, as also like as a, uh, a translation that would have its own theology as yeah. well uh, as well as the NRSV. Uh, I think that would would enrich this kind of spectrum yeah. of different translations and to you know read between the lines yeah. of what these translators are also trying to communicate and to notice the gaps and the differences between these translations. Yeah, and there's another one to maybe recommend, if, if for, especially for Old Testament texts, Robert Alter, uh, who's a, an individual scholar, has pro- produced a, a translation of the entire Old Testament, which is like his, it's idiosyncratic. It's his own way of understanding it, but it, sometimes it can help uh, in dialogue with some of these other uh, translations. Um, so yeah, thanks, Chris. That's a really helpful thing to point out. Um, so uh, now, Chris, you also had another thought about Michael Fox's article here about uh, Joe being kind of disgusted and, you know, some of the, the ways, uh, did you want to ask that? No, I mean, yeah. So one of the one of the articles that we provided in the sort of the plus version of the class uh, uh, is the premium version. I like premium better than plus. Uh, was this Vincent Fox article, which um, I, I think it seems like I'm not a, an expert in Job studies, but he seems to be taking a very firm line here and uh, really trying to even engage Carol Newsom's work and 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 and. Re- explore Job's response and God's response to Job. Um, and so he, he takes a hard line that says that Job was disgusted with himself, um, uh, presumably for speaking about things that he, he was not yet fit to conceive, and that, and that ultimately the divine speeches aren't angry or, you know, insulting or trying to put Job in a small, you know, trying to smash him down, but they are simply 
you weren't there when I created the earth. You weren't, you couldn't know this. You don't know this. And so, um, so I think he takes a very hard line. Um, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if, if that's right or wrong. I like what, what we've been talking about for the last few minutes about the openness of that and, um, and the invitation to see dust and ashes as, um, a reconceiving of one's humanity of, of what it means to be made of dust and ashes. And maybe it is, maybe it is intentionally multivocal that, that, you know, dust and ashes also have this, this sense of mourning, of repentance, of, of lament. And, and maybe it, is it both? Could it, is it possible? Can we imagine a world where uh, there, there's both of those? Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would think that, uh, because of the interaction, Job has changed. Because of the suffering that he had endured, he has changed. Um, and there is something I usually say <laughs> for, to my students, that given the prologue, uh, where God says, you incited me uh, against my servant Job, and then God uses the word necham, uh, which could be- For no uh, reason, for, yeah. Without reason or without purpose. And that without purpose is really scary <laughs> because, yeah. uh, because it, so, so was this test eventually uh, did not have an end goal to it and was then open. And therefore, if Job had learned something from that experience, whatever that thing is, um, it only happened because actually Job took on the hard work of speaking up. And he dared to uh, accuse God of injustice or uh, uh, called on to God to come to court and, uh, and get into this debate and to try to work this out or to uh, uh, try to understand. That is in some ways, the verse is open to multiple interpretations and uh, a particular translation might take God's side. Another translation might take Job's side. Uh, there are translations that try to kind of like mediate between both sides. Um, eventually, I think what is really important and the ambiguity about the verse and the ambiguity about the different parts of the book itself, we should not just settle to one voice right. and we should not settle to just one reading. Yeah. Uh, we may lean towards one reading, but we are called to remain open to others who are reading this differently because... Right of their theological presuppositions. That doesn't mean we just accept it. We enter into a critical dialogue with uh, our partners in reading, but we also honor that there will not be just one simple reading to yeah. This yeah. that would reduce this complexity. Yeah. And I think, I think part of at least my personal um, holdups with 42.6 or my questions about 42.6 connect with the rest of the prose epilogue, which, which says, Twice, twice it says that that God that that Job spoke rightly of of God, uh, and so that seems if if we're if he's repenting of what he said, and then you know just a few verses later it says twice uh, that Job spoke rightly. It, it it there's some dissonance in my mind there, and so what do you two think uh, it means that Job spoke rightly um, of of God, um, and and how that. How does that wrap up the story uh, in Job? Brendan, you wanna? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in, but yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say too. But yeah, uh, one of the things that um, we, we heard from uh, uh, Leong Seau last week and then uh, from uh, Brent Strong before that, and actually Carol kind of alluded at this too, this has been kind of a, a refrain which has been helpful uh, throughout. But I mean, I, I, for me, 
when I hear that Job has spoken rightly, and I especially compare it to the fact that God gives a first divine speech, uh, and then Job responds in chapter 40, but, uh, but in a way that God seems unhappy with. And basically, Job just says, I'm too small. You know, if there's a kind of a repenting, that's, Job seems to do it there, repenting in terms of saying, I'm nothing, I don't know anything. God seems to be really unhappy with that. And that's when God jumps into the chaos monsters and saying, you're like one of these chaos monsters, come at me, right? And then, and then Job has this kind of really, uh, Job quotes God, uh, but then has this like really poetically interesting and generative and ambiguous conclusion. And then God seems to say, you got it, great. Um, which, you know, is confounding in so many ways. Uh, but the, so maybe that's what is right, not the fact that it's ambiguous necessarily, but just the fact that Job kind of gets it, that, the, that there's no simple answer to the world, that God has created a very complex uh, thing. And, and, and in a way, if you think about it, like the, the prologue asked that question about kind of a, a why, why do we do the things we do, right? Well, do we have interest in piety or not? Like we we want to get something out of our relationship with God, or are we kind of free? And is God free to act in ways that we don't understand and that even seem hurtful? Um, uh, and are, are, are we free to respond in our own way too? And so Job kind of takes that freedom here, I think, and actually lives into it a bit, takes some responsibility for, for his own language and, and what he's saying. And then God seems to say, great, okay, we're, we're all good now. And, and that's what's right, rather than the friends who seem to repeat what God wants to hear. It's, you know, I, I think that's an important thing for, for us to imagine. Like a lot of Christians kind of say the things they think they want, that God wants to hear from us. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that's come out of um, uh, uh, a lot of scholarship in the last 30 years or so, when people have felt a bit more free to ask these kinds of theological questions, you know, saying those things that sound dissonant or, or that a question, the kind of simple truths that we've been handed, um, Maybe God really wants that. It's part of the kind of maturation or, or growing up process. So maybe the com complexity of Job is really about trying to get us to grow up, uh, get us to ask better questions and not settle for simple answers that extinguish the question, as, uh, like the question of suffering or something. But that's just that, that, that's one of the things I take away. But Safwa, what, what about you? Yeah, um, I, I think the, uh, one of the things you said, Brennan, that uh, was also, um, uh, I think it, it connects with verse six as well, uh, that, you know, with this notion of uh, Job repenting or Job just giving up, God, God would have won after the first speech, right? Job said, okay, I will be silent. Um, and in some ways you won, but that God didn't want to settle there. So it's, it seems that um, there was more to the divine speeches than silencing Job. Right. Uh, there was uh, more into it, into inviting Job into seeing the world as God sees it and seeing Job as God sees Job now, who is resilient in the face of suffering. Um, as for like speaking uh, what is right, uh, and I definitely think that the immediate context uh, is, is out there where Job is kind of uh, recognizing that there is more to the world than what he has assumed. And now he is willing to continue to ask. I ask, can you teach me? Uh, uh, which kind of plays off what God said earlier, I ask, can you teach me? Uh, so this kind of like conti con continuing the conversation, continuing the asking and the learning. Um, there is the possibility, if this is also just the prose, uh, mm -hmm. that maybe this is going back to what Job said in, uh, in the epilogue, where uh, the relinquishment. Job is, you know, accepting um, uh, what God uh, does, and you know that's Job's uh, piety and Job's uh, pious posture. The problem with that proposal is that the friends had not spoken yet, 
uh, <laughs> right? So, so th th this is one of the gaps that we get in the narrative yeah. uh, between if we just take the prose by itself without the, the poetry, then do we have a missing speech by the, the friends uh, yeah. that now God is actually rejecting or now the epilogue actually assumes uh, the, the poetry and therefore it's referring to uh, what they have uh, said wrong about God as opposed to Job who said really scary things about God in the poetry. Mm -hmm. So if we take uh, Job said what is right about me, not just in uh, 42 verses one through six, but the, the whole Job and discourse, then Job is saying pretty much uh, that God is, you know, um, uh, in God's court, might makes right. And, you know, God just does whatever God wants. God is unpredictable and so on, uh, which I invite my students to say, okay, if, you, if, if what Job says about God bothers you or you think that Job is so arrogant, he dares to say that, read, you know, uh, chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, and then reread the whole book yeah. to, to reconstruct what God is uh, or who God is according to what Job is saying. Uh, if Job is saying what is right about me really refers to what Job said in the whole uh, dialogue mm -hmm. and not just in chapter 42 verses 1 through 6. Yeah. It leaves us with a, 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 a different image about God that is not this cuddly God and domesticated God, but we also have Job who dares to name that out. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, Thank you. I, I have nothing to add. You have you have spoken <laughs> rightly. You. <laughs> well, 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 one thing that might be one thing that might be helpful here too is to say that like this kind of unpredictability. Like Job recognizes the unpredictability of the world in some way. That he accepts his role as as participating in some of the chaos of the universe. So we we then return to the folktale form, which seems to kind of be about. I mean, often folktales are about, uh, you know, easy answers, wrapping things up nicely in a bow and so on. And some people have pointed out that it looks on the surface like the prose epilogue ties things up in a bow, but there are actually some kind of loose edges here. You know, Job gets everything back and everything's great, right? But Safat, what would you say to someone who says, yeah, but then just the end of the story is everything turns out happy and that kind of just wipes away the meaning of the whole book? Yeah, well, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I mean, for various reasons. One is that, uh, you know, the notion of the, of the test, uh, that Job is being tested and his piety, uh, why does he fear God, is not revisited mm -hmm. um, in, in, in some ways. Uh, and importantly, the adversary, the Satan, does not show up. Mm -hmm. um, I think another really important aspect is that Although uh, we get this ambiguous justification of Job that he told the truth about God and that God is asking Job to, in some ways, intercede on behalf of the friends, um, God does not, uh, in some ways, tell the truth about what happened <laughs> between, <laughs> between God and the adversary. God, that yeah. God does not tell uh, Job uh, or the friends that uh, I'm also responsible. And, and in some ways, uh, that leaves uh, us as readers uh, knowing more about the story and about what happened than the characters that are in the narrative itself. So it's, it leaves uh, some gap about justice and truth uh, and whether, you know, this kind of um, uh, uh, God restoring Job and uh, giving him double and all uh, doesn't really fully uh, kind of 
answer all of the questions that were raised both in the epilogue and in uh, the poetry. I think another really important uh, component is there is suffering that cannot be undone by just being given wealth. Uh, the children that he had lost and the trauma that he had experienced, the alienation that he had uh, endured, the disorientation that th this cannot be undone by just giving double uh, as if, uh, you know, uh, uh, as it's been mentioned in uh, various uh, commentaries, uh, giving the double is remind, reminds us of the legal material in Exodus about, you know, uh, theft, that you, you pay the double as if God had robbed Job of something and now God is paying double. Um, but but there, is, there is that notion that, you know, this retribution, this, this divine blessing does not undo the suffering that Job endured. Yeah. Um, it does not take away uh, what, yes, he has grown. Uh, if we uh, take 42.6 in, in that way, he had uh, seen the world in a different way, but there is that suffering that uh, he had experienced. There is no mention of him being healed in his, yeah. in his body. Does that mean that there are things that had continued uh, uh, for him to, uh, to wrestle with? Yeah. One of the things that I really struggled with about the epilogue is that God is asking Job, who in some ways suffered because of the bad theology of the friends, or let me rephrase that, the, the, the attempt of the friends to squeeze Job into their theology. Wow, yeah. That God asks the one who suffered to intercede on behalf of the friends. <laughs> so is that deepening the wound of the sufferer or... Uh, should we take it as this is actually God giving Job agency? Mm. That in oh. some ways God is, 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 is accepting Job's role as someone who has the capacity to uh, uh, forgive, to even intercede on behalf of the foolishness that uh, the friends uh, had uh, said about God. Um, so in some ways, it's actually redemptive. It's, Job is given wow. agency. But it's not just about the friends. Because God says in the epilogue, uh, when Job uh, you know, intercedes and offers these sacrifices, it's interesting that God says, you know, and, and my way of dealing with you, you friends, hinges on Job doing that. Otherwise, I will deal with you in foolishness. Right, so it's it, like like Job's agency is not just about interceding on behalf of the friends; it also affects God. Wow, that the way God is going to handle the situation with the friends depends on Job's actions. So yes, it's kind of like putting a lot of pressure on the sufferer Job to intercede on behalf of those who have uh, deepened his wounds because they try to squeeze him into their theology but it also gives him agency. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a kind of surprising uh, twist in a way. I mean, a lot of folktales end with the bad guys dying. 
They, they get like in Daniel, even you get the, the, yeah. guy, the bad guys get thrown to lions, right? Instead of Daniel. Um, but but here we see a different vision of community and of uh, you know for for a book that talks a lot about creation and uncreation. You know, Job asks for the uncreation of the world in chapter three. God talks about the creation of the world uh, in chapter thirty-eight uh, and and kind of all the way through to forty-two. Um, and so this kind of theme about creating and uncreating or chaos taking things apart, but then also the kind of opportunity and possibility for things to emerge or new life to generate where things have devolved in some way and how this might be a principle of creation. Like there's, there's this notion of like, that there's a possibility of regenerating a community where it once existed. And Job, um, uh, you know, reconciliation with his friends actually um, generates both something new and revives something that had died in the midst of that process of conversation. So yeah, maybe that there's something about, but then also this notion that, uh, that the, the community regenerates around Job, you know, Job has been excluded from the community in chapter 19. He says, everyone's pushed me away. They're all sad about me and, and feel kind of feel so bad about me in a way that they have excluded me. Maybe they think I'm sinful. Maybe they think that I'm a bad luck magnet or something. Um, so he has to sit in the dung heap, you know, outside of the town. But here we see him being put at the center of the community, the person who had had been had been suffering, right? The, so if the sufferer can be a, an agent of regenerating the whole community, the community of his friends and the community of people. And I notice here that uh, in, in the, the end of Job, in the, in the epilogue, um, that God gives Job twice as much, but the people who actually give to Job are the community, right? Like, the, like his uh, brothers and sisters come to eat with him. And that's be the beginning of the kind of sharing a meal, the regenerating, uh, the cre recreation of a community. But then also everyone brings them lots of money, right? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, there's actual, I mean, you know, and uh, Thomas Bolin is a scholar who's pointed out that the similarities between some of this and uh, some, some of the, the discussions about things like racial reconciliation, uh, which that word can be, uh, um, uh, you know, problematic because maybe there hasn't been a conciliation to get back to in many ways. Um, uh, but in any event, this, but this, just that notion of, uh, uh, of there's a redistribution of wealth that happens here at the end of Job um, that has to do, and that, that's how God restores the fortunes. It's not magic, like he gets the money in his checkbook somehow, but it's like his friends and family and the community members actually do this work of, I mean, you might say reparations, right? Paying money to and somehow rebuild someone up who's had something taken from them unjustly. Yes, yes. I, I really like this idea of rebuilding the community and regenerating uh, the community. The only pushback I may say about this is yeah. that, I mean, where were they before? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> why, why does they, it wait until this moment? Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like we, we hear about the, we hear about the friends uh, and who then, you know, start really well by sitting with him. Yeah. Uh, in the dust and ashes and, you know, try to comfort him. And, and we do get the same words here about comfort uh, mm -hmm. from this kind of expanding community. But, um, and I, I really like this idea of regenerating the community and the way God works uh, in um, regenerating Job's uh, uh, well-being is through the community. But I also wonder, you know, whether they started to show up after God had taken the initiative. Ah, you're wondering what's in their hearts, just like chapter one of Job, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, like, you know, uh, were they waiting for God to do that? Um, yeah. I, I mean, right. um, uh, is this, is this a, a, a one of the ways uh, that the, the narr narrative is also showing that, you know, Job's, even the regeneration of the community hinged also on him reconciling with the friends who were mean to him but also God also uh, restoring Job, yeah. God taking the initiative 
uh, as well. I, I really hope that you know uh, this would empower us as, as communities uh, where we experience lots of pain and suffering um, around us where uh, we do not wait uh, yeah, right. know, for, for Job's portion, uh, right. whoever Job around us, uh, yeah. because we're good at this. We're good at, you know, 50 years later, we recognize, oh, you know, we should have done that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and it's not just about being on the right side of history. We, this should not be the motivation. It's, it's, the motivation is about the moral discernment here and now where, you know, God is calling us as faith communities to look for those who are suffering around us, to befriend them, uh, to sit with them in the dust and ashes to offer uh, what we can um, in ways that would help them to, uh, you know, be empowered in the resilience in the midst of the disorientation and the trauma that they are going through. The whole, the whole ending, that, this conversation about, about building, rebuilding community reminds me, you know, I'm going to put, you know, my New Testament glasses on and say, reminds me of, of Luke Acts, where financial resources are typically, they can be depicted as a tremendous hindrance to discipleship. But when they're not, it is when, when material resources are used to create community. Zacchaeus is sort of a prime example of a, you know, a tax collector who had, who had been skimming off the top. And not only does he repent um, and, and promise to pay back those that he's wronged, he also sort of throws this, this elaborate feast um, for Jesus, we see. And, and the ways in which um, community is rebuilt, um, not just through hugs and and positive words but through through material resources um uh, that can be used to um again create spaces where that that work happens um where Mm -hmm. that community is rebuilt i want to i want to ask you too there were there were a couple comments uh in a in the live, in the Facebook, and then one on our Zoom about this depiction of Job, and we there have been suggestions about two other figures from the Old Testament that Job might be likened to. The first is is Job here presented as a priest because he intercedes and sacrifices for his friends, and the other is um, does the depiction of Job particularly particularly in the epilogue, suggests Job as a sort of precursor to the suffering servant from Isaiah. Um, uh, and do you guys have any thoughts about that? And then we can, we can move on to the next thing. But uh, just that, that those were really interesting questions, and I wonder what you think about them. Yeah, um, I, I think there is the, the notion of uh, innocent suffering that connects the uh, suffering servant in um, uh, Isaiah 52, 13 to... 5312 uh, with Job that uh, this is an undeserved uh, suffering if we uh, follow this kind of uh, cause and effect proverbial wisdom or deuteronomic way of thinking about the world. Uh, and I think in, in Isaiah is really significant because in the time of the exile, most of the prophets explain the exile as a justified divine uh, judgment uh, because the people have broken the covenant or so. And here you have this voice uh, that in some ways says, no, uh, you know, if, if, if the suffering servant represents Israel that has been exiled, uh, Israel was actually not um, um, you know, sinful in that capacity. And if we were to connect it even more uh, with this, uh, uh, you know, even the retributive theology in Isaiah, in second Isaiah chapter 40, where Jerusalem was paid double 
but not in restoration, in punishment, in judgment. Yeah. Yeah. That which is, is bad. God, which is bad. God, God, yeah. God is recognizing like God overdid it in some ways. Uh, so, so the innocent suffering, I think, is really significant and, um, and really important here in terms of the connection between Job and uh, uh, second Isaiah, there, there, there is uh, another Jobin kind of like a Naomi uh, or Naomi in the book of Ruth, um, uh, who in some ways seen as the uh, female Job of uh, the Hebrew Bible, where pretty much she loses everything and she returns. And when she returns, she actually names, I mean, God did that to me. Um, uh, so there is that assertion of divine sovereignty um, uh, in that situation, but uh, she also dares to name that and then to connect it with uh, the point that Brennan was making earlier, this kind of uh, newness and new beginning that happened, happened also because of a community that came together uh, wow. from this Moabite uh, daughter-in-law, Ruth and Boaz and even Naomi herself with her plots and the ways she uh, had empowered this migrant foreigner with her. Yeah, uh, and still so, some agency there, yeah. So agency yes. with the person who would be uh, understood by, by society to have less agency or maybe even no agency. Absolutely. Kind of the yes. benefit of the handouts or something, but really it's, it's they're the engine for their own uh, renewal, but the community has to in some way recognize that that's, that's necessary and good uh, and that they, they deserve it in a way. Yes, absolutely. Um, so what, one of the things that's interesting about this, uh, last bit of the conclusion too that people pick up on. I mean, as you pointed out, Safwat, there's some absences, like Job's healing is actually not mentioned. People have mentioned uh, that um, at the very beginning of the book of Job, Job has servants, or uh, probably a better translation for that is slaves. Uh, that's to say that the slave owning um, uh, was common throughout the, the ancient Near East and through ancient Eastern cultures. Uh, Mitzi Smith has written an article about the kind of realities of uh, slaves and uh, uh, people who have been enslaved and slave owning cultures uh, in the ancient world. Um, that's in the Philippians folder, you can find it there. Um, but uh, just to say that, uh, that it was accepted as a kind of a norm in ancient Israelite society, um, but here they, servants or slaves are not mentioned actually at the end of the book, which is another kind of interesting omission along with his health, um, that his health doesn't seem to be restored, um, or at least named as such. Um, but there is a focus, uh, a very specific focus on three women at the end of the book, which is unusual for several reasons. But Safa, do you want to maybe mention what, what is so strange about ending the book with this kind of meditation on three women, uh, these, these particular three women? Yes, uh, I, I find it really uh, uh, intriguing that the book uh, names the three daughters, uh, does not name the, the sons uh, of Job, but names uh, the three daughters uh, who have beautiful names. And then the, the text uh, notes that they were also given inheritance. And in a patriarchal culture, uh, you know, daughters would not be given inheritance unless there are no, uh, you know, uh, 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 brothers. So they, and, and we uh, know the story of the Zilophahed uh, uh, daughters mm -hmm. in the book of Numbers. Uh, so you have kind of like some uh, empowerment here, uh, maybe uh, uh, naming uh, also, uh, these women and granting them inheritance as a way of this uh, reparation, this way of doing justice, maybe way of uh, uh, changing the culture. Uh, does that, you know, emerge because of Job's experience? Uh, quite open possibility. Hmm. Uh, but it does really stand out. 
uh, in terms yeah. of both naming them and also granting them uh, in inheritance and um, um, making sure that this is really evident. <laughs> Yeah, and there's the, that they have beautiful names you pointed out, like cinnamon uh, and uh, eyeshadow, a horn of antinomy, yeah. you know, kind of a, a, and a like they, they, uh, yeah, dove. Yeah, so like this, I mean, this kind of fascinating, uh, and, and going back to the chapter one in Job, where Job has all these children in this great life, but doesn't seem to appreciate much of it. He's always anxiously sacrificing on behalf of his children in case they've sinned. And here he's kind of these, these uh, focusing on kind of the beauty of life, but also maybe recognizing that there's an injustice in the way that women are treated in society or that the inheritance laws work and so on. There seems to be this kind of uh, freedom or that Job seems to feel or interest in his own life that he seems to have. And, you know, he kind of comes back to it. So uh, Paul Ricoeur, um, this uh, French literary theorist, points out that some stories like this return to kind of a naivete that you get at the beginning of the story, but it's different. It's this kind of second or different naivete where you see your life again uh, and, and you're maybe not so consumed with some of the questions you had before, but you recognize some of the, I don't know, grace of it or just the, kind of the amazingness of, the, of, of your own wonder in a way to talk about what Bill Brown says. But I don't know. So uh, that to me, yeah, that's a, a beautiful kind of way to end the story. I, yeah. I do recognize, I just yeah. saw the time. We have a big question to ask. We, do. we have a big question to ask. So I, I, was to, I was actually trying to talk a lot to avoid that question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, here's the big one. Uh, so a yeah, a theodicy, right? So a theodicy is this big theological question where there's, it's a, it's a typically a Christian question, but other cultures, uh, other religious cultures have, have grappled with it too. Um, but it's formulated generally with three parts, that there's three things that a lot of Christians want to say about God, uh, and they want to hold all three of them. And this, this can kind of apply to Jewish uh, uh, the religious culture too. But um, so the, the one idea is that God is all powerful. Uh, a second idea is that God is good. And a third idea is that evil exists. And so if those three things are all true, we want to hold all of them as true. We have a problem because if God's all powerful and all good, why does evil exist? Or maybe God's not powerful enough to get rid of the evil, or maybe, maybe God's not actually all good, right? These are different ways that we might, uh, or evil is an illusion. So those are some ways that we might think about this, uh, this, this problem. So do you think that Job is trying to offer a solution to the problem of evil? Yeah, well, so I think, I think the answer is yes and no. Um, uh, no, because, you know, uh, Job doesn't, uh, you know, uh, have a kind of a, uh, uh, a syst systematic statement about, you know, all of these components and putting them as, you know, a theological uh, uh, statement and trying to kind of even things out. That's why I say no. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a... Uh, uh, a philosophical statement in, in the sense of trying to move from point one to two to three and trying to make everything is coherent and symmetrical. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's a very positive way of describing philosophy, but, <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but, but th there is that kind of uh, maybe interest in, in creating uh, cohesion uh, in, in the idea and in an even abstract way. Uh, I would say yes, because it does talk about the problem of evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there is uh, an interest in the question about uh, who God is and how God's power relate to the suffering that an innocent person experiences. Maybe there is not an immediate question about God's goodness, but there is something about the goodness uh, of the human being, whether these human beings actually deserve that. So 
theodicy is also not just about God's goodness, but also God's justice, that, yeah. that there is an order in the world, that there is a system in the world that we can, you know, wake up in the morning and find our feet on the ground, not on the ceiling, uh, that <laughs> yeah. a reliable life in, in that. Um, so, but, but Job offers different postures towards the question. Yeah. So in some ways, if uh, our philosophical way of thinking about theodicy affirms God's power and uh, God's uh, 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 knowledge as well, which is an important component, in the epilogue, it seems like God, is, God doesn't know how Job is going to respond uh, to the test. Uh, uh, God tells the Satan, you have incited me against my servant Job for no reason. So can God be manipulated by this adversary? Um, so there, there, are, there is interest in the problem of an innocent sufferer. There is, a, there is a, uh, an interest in the question around evil, but is God all-knowing and is God all-powerful in, uh, in the epilogue? So that's, that's an important question there. Yeah. I would say in the dialogue, um, the friends are offering a theodicy in the sense that they are trying to defend God by actually blaming Job. So they are putting the blame on Job. You, have, uh, you are suffering. This means you have done something wrong. So it's the proverbial cause and effect. Uh, they are moving from the effect to the cause. You're suffering. That means you have done something wrong. So it is a theodicy that actually coheres with maybe what Augustine has suggested a long time ago about, you know, God created a perfect world and because of the human freedom, uh, sin uh, entered into the world and uh, sin led to suffering. So in some ways, it's a defense uh, for God's goodness and God's power. It's what we experience is a result of what we have done. So the friends, uh, whatever the theological framework they are working with, they are offering a theodicy in the sense that they are trying to defend God, that God, things do not happen uh, randomly in this world. Mm -hmm. You have done something wrong and therefore this, this is what you're experiencing. Job, I think, uh, and I would argue, Job is assuming an order in the world. Right. I mean, that's why he's, he's mourning and lamenting and protesting because his experience does not cohere with what he's assuming. I think the main difference between Job and the friends is that the friends are trying to squeeze Job into their theology. Job is saying, I am innocent. I have not done anything wrong. I do not deserve this. And therefore, I call what had, had happened to me, which caused by God, as injustice. And therefore, I call unto God to explain it to me or undo it or you know, deliver me from this uh, suffering. So there is, a, there is a, both of them, Job and the friends, are assuming something. And, and it's the problem or the, the difference is just that they are seeing the world through their either different the, the tradition or Job through his own experience that he does not fit into that box. Yeah. Mm. It, the divine speech is offering a response to theodicy in the sense that the divine design in the world allows for uh, chaos. That, you know... Uh, there is no one single answer yeah. to what we see and what we experience. And that God has a, a way of doing justice that is beyond our understanding as, as, as human beings. Hmm. So in, in some ways, I would think the book of Job 
is not a theodicy in the sense that is is not offering a uh, an organized uh, theological or a philosophical statement how to reconcile all these different components about God and the experience of evil in the world. But it is a theodicy in the sense that it is engaging the problem of evil, but from different angles. And these angles speak to each other and we should not privilege one over uh, the others. We should keep them in tension because they are in some ways are speaking about different experiences that people go through and um, um, you know, uh, experience in their life and try to make sense of. Wow. I feel like that was a master course in Job in just like two minutes. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. I'm really glad we, we didn't let you talk so much th uh, about other things that we got, we didn't yeah. hear that. No, I'm serious. Apple. That was a really, really brilliant uh, summation of the book and all of the different kind of what Carol Newsom would say, the moral imaginations or the theological imaginations involved in it. But yeah. I love that conclusion that the book is not trying to smash anything into one size fits all theology, but it's trying to get us to kind of expand ourselves. I mean, I like that way of talking about Job in chapter one, like it's a parable. You know, there once was a man named Job who lived in, you know, the idea that the parable um, doesn't exist in the New Testament. Chris, you can tell me more about this, but in the, you know, Jesus doesn't tell parables to give you a simple, uh, yeah. a dr dry, you know, clear cut solution that you're supposed to, everyone's supposed to get the first time they hear it, but you're supposed to, I mean, a parabola is a curving thing, right? You're supposed to kind of be led on this kind of journey of new uh, uh, discoveries and all these little bits of the parables that we don't listen to sometimes on the first listen, you hear about them again and you're like, whoa, that, that, that changes the whole meaning of this story. And I, I feel like the kind of the possibilities of emergence and of, of ourselves growing in our own faith and our own uh, personhood, um, that those in, a, in our communities growing, that those are kind of possibilities that emerge out of uh, relating to these different perspectives in Job and that none of them is kind of the, like it, we're not we're not trying to find the answer that's going to extinguish the question, and I think that's the crucial crucial thing that, that you've brought up, Southwell, is that all of these questions continue to to keep working um, and keep uh, de uh, developing and uh, expanding and, and and creating new ideas and, and possibilities out of them, and that uh, it's almost like thinking of of the different parts of Job as like a toolkit. Uh, rather than as uh, like a, a, a fire blanket that's going to extinguish the questions that we have. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, I uh, I like this way of putting it as well because uh, as the story ends, Job and the friends did not really, at least from the narratival framework, did not know what happened between God and the adversary. Yeah. And that, and that, in some ways, yes, we as readers are, uh, you know, more informed. But that does not mean that about our own experiences and about our own suffering, we're, we're as informed. We are Job <laughs> and we are the friends in some ways, uh, not, not the reader <laughs> who, yeah. who has like an insider kind of knowledge about what happened between God and the Satan. And therefore, we continue to wrestle. Uh, and we continue to listen to the multiple voices that, uh, that try to do that. To be honest, even with the friends, I, I take Job's side. As, uh, yeah. as you know, sympathetic with this uh, 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 suffering uh, individual, but even with the friends, I think I think we are like them in many ways. And I think the question about theodicy is is essentially is like the friends. Hmm. The question hmm. about yeah. theodicy is actually trying to find uh, a coherent way of putting order on the disorder. Yeah, 
it's a way of, of trying to give meaning to something that has many meanings. And we do that. We like people like read the friends and takes job side and we're like, you know, like how dare they do that? We do that. We do that as pastors sometimes where we try to impose a particular order around things. We do that even like uh, uh, on like many questions around us where we try to uh, try to find equations, things mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. that give gives us meaning and sense. And that's not a bad thing. I think the problem happens when we just close the, the, the equations, where we feel like we mastered it and we got it. Yeah. And we can try to fit every single thing and every different experience into that equation. To stop the conversation. To stop the conversation. Yeah. That, that's, that's the problem, right? Yeah. And I think, I think that's where I would say, that's probably the one thing where I would say that Job resists being a theodicy, because in my understanding of theodicy, God's goodness is something that is very, like, it's self-evident. It's something that everybody knows. And I think particularly the divine speeches push against that. And Job's response pushes against that, that we don't, we don't have all the answers. We don't have this simple blanket statement or a verse that we have in our back pocket to throw out when somebody's suffering. Um, and, and so, so we, we, we sit with people, we engage them in conversation, um, and we continue the conversation rather than trying to squelch it um, for, for, our, for our own sake or, or the sake of our friends. Absolutely. Um, I think the best thing we can do is to befriend the person who's suffering. Yeah. To 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 be there, to be present, uh, and if you know, the, I mean, the Book of Job is one voice in the Bible uh, where God seems distant, transcendent. Um, you know, not a lot of discourse about God's goodness <laughs> or God's love and all of this. But we also have other voices in the in the Hebrew Bible and in uh, the New Testament about God who's a suffering God, God who um, is with us in this. And not just, you know, trying to show us how uh, small we are in this, but uh, God, the incarnate, you know, uh, suffers and experiences death and injustice and raised from the dead. And, you know, God is with us. And that's what God wants us to be and do as, as a faith community. We may not uh, have the perfect answers to why suffering happens in this world, but the Bible even the book of Job itself offers us how we should respond. Mm, yeah. So maybe, maybe we don't know why. Maybe we don't have full answers, but we know how. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least from, from the book of Job with words of uh, uh, lament and protest that we are empowered in this relationship, this covenantal relationship, mm -hmm. where God takes us seriously as partners with God, who can actually tell God to God's face what you're doing is injustice. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, maybe we, if we are abusing our power, because suffering is not just mysterious. Sometimes we cause suffering in the world. Yeah. And this is where maybe the voice of the friends is important. Maybe not to Job because he's an innocent sufferer, but maybe to people who abuse their power. Yeah. Maybe people who are inflicting others, who are called to actually repent. So they know that the suffering is happening and what they are called to do is not to lament. Because they are actually the ones who are causing that suffering. Yeah, they're called a repentance. Therefore, their, their faithful response is actually repentance and changing their ways. Yeah. Maybe one last thought on yeah, this. Yeah. I have you know, experience with uh, 
people who come from marginalized contexts that, you know, to them, this idea of, because theologically speaking, sometimes I want to push against the, the way God is portrayed in the book of Job. I want God to be relational. I want God to be here with me in the, in the suffering and, you know, uh, liberate and save and transform. But I've talked with some people who experience unspeakable suffering and their response was relinquishment. And I am like, you, you have the right to protest. And their response is like, this is not what I, what I want to do because, because God is all I got. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's this sovereign God, this transcendent God, who even you know mysterious in some ways, um, is what gives them hope. Mm-hmm. So that taught me that I think between praise and lament, between relinquishment and protest, what matters is authenticity. Mm-hmm. What matters is I am not trying to put on a face of being uh, offering praise in the midst of suffering. So I would appear that I am a strong of faith. Yeah. No, because that actually, that actually goes back to the epilogue where, why am I fearing the Lord? Yeah. <laughs> why am I accepting this? It's about authenticity. It's about actually being truthful with God. Whether in protest, God, you are treating me unjustly. Mm-hmm. Or, you have given, you have taken, and I worship thee. It's authenticity that matters. And it's a good, it's a good reminder too, Safwat, that uh, we can all be the friends in that we try to shove others into our theology, squish them into our theology, rather than engaging them where they're at. You know, and so you're, you're what you started with that sense of you know, I want to push certain people to protest and to, to, to revolt and, you know, and, and that may not be where they're at. And it would be, it would be a move of the friends to say, you've got to be in this theological place. I've got to get you in this box, even if it doesn't fit right now. And so, um, again, that the value of question and conversation and and sitting with people. Yeah. We we could be Job's friends by forcing people to lament when they actually don't, that that, that's not their natural response. Right. Yeah. I, I, there's a biblical scholar, um, from Haiti named Sadrach Nelson, um, who I was talking to about Job. And he said, after this one major earthquake that happened several years ago in Haiti, um, some people lament, uh, and, and that, that's what they can do. But there were a bunch of people that came and had a big parade and a big party in the streets afterwards. And he said, that was that he said, I was with, I was in the party because like my response is, Hey, I, I, this is all I got. All I've got is my praise. And, and there's some, it's kind of, a, there's some amazing, I, I heard that and I was like, wow, you know, and sometimes the protest and lament can be a privileged position too. So anyway, yeah, just fascinating stuff. And Safwat, thank you so much for expanding our horizons about the book of Job. Thank you for your, all your work uh, in the church and biblical studies community, but also uh, your words uh, in your uh, intercultural church book. Um, we are so grateful for all the time that you have given for us and for going over. And uh, I, I look forward to catching up with you again sometime uh, in person when, when this is all over. <laughs> but yes. probably not SBL this year, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you two are doing amazing work. Oh, I don't know about that, but you are doing amazing work. <laughs> thank and, you. Honestly, uh, uh, we'll be back together uh, for office hours uh, in August. So we're going to start again in August, August 5th. We're going to talk about the book of James. So keep your eye out uh, for uh, uh, the sign up and for a a syllabus for that one. Safwat, thank you again so much. And uh, peace.
peace to y'all and uh, may God be with you uh, in the midst of all of this uh, turmoil that we are living through right now. And uh, may, may God be with us in, in generative uh, and life-giving ways, um, but also in um, voices of protest and lament and praise. Amen. Thanks, y'all.